Joy Sauce is a new American Asian media platform that makes space for vibrant, unforgettable stories full of nuance and contradictions seldom discussed in the mainstream, normalizing and celebrating Asian American presence in all facets of media. Enjoy the diverse tapestry of narratives that make up the American Asian landscape at www.joysauce.com. Hey everyone, it's David Chen, the host of the Culturally Relevant podcast, and welcome to Culturally Relevant Conversations, a special collection of interviews from my podcast featuring Asian diaspora visionaries brought to you courtesy of Joy Sauce. What you're about to hear is my conversation with Bao Win about his Bruce Lee documentary called Be Water. Bao Win is a filmmaker whose work has appeared in the New York Times, HBO, NBC, and Vice. He's the director of Live from New York, a documentary about Saturday Night Live, and his documentary Be Water recently aired on ESPN, and it chronicles the life of Bruce Lee. This conversation was originally published in June of 2020. Enjoy. Test X2, take one. Now, Bruce, just look right into the camera lens right here and tell us your name. My last name is Lee, Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee himself was earth-shattering, respected, envy, even worshipped. He had big dreams, big aspirations. He knew he had something to share. America was not ready for an Asian hero. He was rejected. He had to show them that an Asian could be a leading man. His very presence on screen is a protest. People starting to react against the racism of the West. He was trying to make the kind of films he wanted to make. There were going to be people that would attack him. You still think of yourself Chinese, or do you ever think of yourself as North American? You know what I want to think of myself? As a human being. Bao Win, thanks for joining me today on Culturally Relevant. How are you doing today, sir? I'm good, David. How are you doing? I am doing well. Excited to talk with you uh, about Be Water. So one thing I like to do on this podcast, uh, which is something I ripped off shamelessly from another podcast called The Q&A, is I like to start with breaking in stories. You know, curious about how you broke into the film industry. Uh, I, I guess I would say I'm still breaking in. It's hard to say that I broke in. It's a bit per, uh, pompous. Uh, it's I, a breaking like, in in progress right now. Exactly. This is I. After this podcast interview, I feel like I have broken it. Right? Is that well, maybe that's a, this that's is a time, this is the this thing is that's going to break you in. Point. Exactly. This exactly. is the moment right now that, yes. you're, that you're breaking in. Got it. Um, <laughs> I guess I could start with um, how I became a filmmaker. Right? Just the the background of what got me into the love of cinema and visual arts. And it really starts before I was born. I would say my parents were Vietnamese um, war refugees. They left Vietnam on a boat, were at water for uh, two weeks before they arrived to Hong Kong. And they were refugees there for about six months. And then they came over to America. And a few years later, I was born. And I bring this up because... Um, I think for many immigrant Americans, uh, children of of refugees, there's a bit of a burden they feel like they have to carry because of the sacrifices their parents made. And because of this, I never pursued, initially pursued filmmaking or anything in the arts because I thought I had to be a lawyer or a doctor or something more lucrative and stable. Um, but I remember just... You know, the arts piqued my interest when I was quite young. When I was five, my parents um, ran a small business and they had me working at the small business at the, you know, legal age of five years old. And um, <laughs> what was I, the business? It was a fabric store. 
And so they would have me, I was a cashier. I would ring up all the customers. My older sister would cut the fabric and she would give these uh, like invoice slips to the customers and they would bring the fabric and the invoice slips to me and I would ring them up. And this is a time when there weren't iPads. Um, My parents didn't give me a Game Boy or anything. And I was working there for from like 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. every weekend. So I was pretty bored as a five-year-old. I wanted some sort of uh, stimulation. And the back of these invoices were blank. There was nothing on them. So I ended up just sketching and drawing all day long when I had free time at the store. And by the end of the day, the trash bin would be just full of my sketches and drawings. And, you know, looking back at it today, I was I was kind of storyboarding. I was drawing out scenes to different stories, different, like, myths that I came up with in my mind. So that really uh, stimulated my imagination for, for a few years. And, you know, I, I continued pursuing arts just as a hobby. Every class I could take in middle school, high school I took. But then I went to NYU, which has a great film school, right? Uh, But I thought it was too late for me to be a filmmaker. I was 17. Um, I was living in a world where, you know, Spielberg was shooting eight millimeter when he's 12. So I was like, oh, I'm like five years past my prime. You're over the hill, man, at 17. Exactly. Um, But then I, I realized that looking back at uh, my youth, I actually did like a short film. It was more of a commercial. When I was nine years old, we had a class assignment to sell a product, which is very American, right? Very uh, exemplary of our capitalist system where they're getting nine-year-olds to try to sell a product. And it, it was supposed to be a written assignment. And um, for some reason, I got inspired and I borrowed our uh, my neighbor's a VHS recorder and I, I directed a commercial. I did like a commercial. Um, and I realized now that, okay, I actually made something when I was nine. So, you know, take that Spielberg. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't realize that going into NYU and also again, that burden of being the children of immigrants. I, I pursued law um, throughout my college um, time. But at this, but you know, simultaneously, I still had that itch to, to work in the arts, creative arts, visual arts. And so I took classes at Tisch every opportunity that I had when I had any type of elective free credit. And that kept my drive going for a while. Um, but, you know, I graduated. I, I, I worked in the peace. I mean, I volunteered in the Peace Corps. I volunteered with AmeriCorps because I had this you know, aspiration to be a human rights lawyer. So I did everything I thought I needed to do um, to go to law school. And um, after six months of studying for my LSAT, like nonstop, I remember the day of my LSAT, I was sitting in my car and uh, I had the key in the ignition, but I I hadn't turned on the engine. And I just like looked in the mirror um, and wondered to myself, is this what I want to do with my life? And this like memory popped up in my brain about, my dad coming home from work after, you know, 10, 11 hour days at the store. And after dinner, he would, um, he would take out a piece of paper and he would sketch and he would do these architectural sketches. And he told his, uh, told my sister and I that he always dreamt of being an architect, but because he couldn't do it coming to America, cause it was too big of a risk for the family. Uh, he gave up on that dream and it, it sort of 
you know, helped me reach this epiphany that, you know, my parents came over to America. They made this harrowing journey to give me a better life. So maybe I should take this opportunity to do something that I'm really passionate about. And I, you know, I took the key out of the engine and I went back to sleep and I never took my LSAT. And after that, I pursued filmmaking full time. Wow. Amazing. You know, I, there are parts of my own personal story I recognize in yours. Like my parents also owned it. They owned a business. It was a Chinese restaurant. And uh, I worked there when I was a kid managing the cashier as well. Uh, and I also took my LSAT, but I actually went in the building. Okay. Uh, I took, <laughs> you, you took it. it for the, yeah. I took it. And later. then I felt bad about like, I was like uh, not doing well on the test. And I actually said, you know what? I'm going to uh, cancel this test uh, and then just take it again later. Because basically, if you take it twice, they actually average the score. So I was like, rather than have this bad one on my record, I'm going to just leave now and cancel it. So I never found out what, I, what score I got. Um, and then I just never took it again, never went down that path. Um, okay, so, it's pretty similar, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, but you know, uh, I, I haven't gone into filmmaking. I've gone into filmmaking commentary with, with a side of filmmaking is more my path. But what were some of the movies uh, and like movie-related experiences that really sparked that love of filmmaking for you? Um, it's hard to like pinpoint other than what I told you about like sketching and drawing and just always visualizing things. Even when I didn't have like a pen and paper, I would be like drawing in the air. Like I would literally be imagining something, a scene happening in front of me. And, uh, my parents were Catholic. So we went to church every Sunday and I was so bored and I would just be like doing these little gestures on my finger. And my dad would just like hit me, like, stop doing that. You look really weird right now. (laughs) Um, and yeah, that, that got me into just like visualizing something that was not in front of me, visualizing something abstract. Right. Mm. And my sister, she was like five years older than me and she was, um, taking me to see independent films. Like she took me to go see like Omodovar films when they were out in the theater or like early Christopher Nolan films. So that got me past like watching the typical films like that me and my friends would watch would be like early Adam Sandler films. And yeah, that, yeah, like, yeah. Things like that would, that wouldn't necessarily like fuel my, uh, my love for cinema. Christopher um, Nolan films, we should point out like before Christopher Nolan movies made a billion dollars, right? Yeah. So, like like following, following or memento level. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, very cool. Um, and I'm curious, you know, B water tells the story of the life of Bruce Lee and, um, what was it that made you want to tell the story? Why this story at this particular moment in time? I think, you know, we talk about representation a lot today, uh, inclusion in the industry. And, um, I was just thinking like, it's so hard for a person of color, an actress, actor of color to make it in Hollywood today. How did someone like Bruce Lee make it in the 1960s? Um, I should like, I'm using air quotes when I say make it in the 1960s, <laughs> right? And so, um, yeah, because at that time, the Vietnam War was just starting to boil up. Uh, a decade earlier was the Korean War, and then two decades before that was uh, World War II, where the Japanese were seen as the enemy. So the face of the Asian man was very much the face of the enemy, the face of the villain. So I wanted to kind of like figure out how Bruce Lee made it or how what led up to his rejection in many ways because when i was younger i remember watching 
Bruce Lee um, movies, just like in syndication and just being in awe of someone that looked like me playing the hero. Uh, because again, the, the depictions of Asians were through the lens of them being subservient, uh, the sidekick, this, the villain. And then here's Bruce Lee just like kicking ass, right? As a, as a martial arts hero and being the lead in, in Enter the Dragon. Um, so that, that always kind of solidified my appreciation for Bruce Lee as the symbol, right? The symbol for representation, the symbol for the underdog. But, you know, I realized I didn't know anything about him as a person. And I think um, we look at Bruce Lee often as this global cultural icon that everyone takes ownership. And I don't think we have, as Asian Americans, taken ownership of that aspect of his story, the story of him being the other, being treated differently because he was uh, Chinese and, you know, coming from Hong Kong and all these things that um, are important to examine in terms of understanding why he got passed over for Kung Fu, the series, and why he didn't make it in Hollywood and he had to make it in Hong Kong first. Um, So, yeah, all these things were... contributing to what type of Bruce Lee film I wanted to make. Um, Because I didn't want to make a definitive film. I don't think anyone can make a definitive film about any subject, really. So I wanted to really use my lens as an Asian American to tell the story of Bruce Lee. Uh, and was it your idea to make the movie or did ESPN come to you? I don't think, you know, I don't think that's the case, right? So, like, how did the project come together from a business perspective? So it was always it was always my concept. Um, after my last film, Live from New York, I just I like tackling American iconic institutions, but through a different lens, a different different perspective that people aren't used to. And so, yeah, Bruce Lee was kind of again this icon that uh, I thought w- could use a different lens. Uh, so I was developing and doing research for a long time, and um, we weren't. Uh, we hit some hurdles, my producer Julia Nottingham and I, in terms of getting it um, developed and getting it produced. And eventually she was like, why don't we approach ESPN? And they were not on my list at all because I just I don't think of Bruce Lee necessarily as a sports figure, um, you know, prominently as a sports figure. But when you think of the other ESPN docs that I've seen, especially in the 30 for 30 series, they usually take sports as this vessel to bring the audience in, but then it becomes part of the background. And then there's larger issues, uh, a more, I wouldn't say more interesting narratives, but deeper narratives that are explored through the background of sports. And um, again, using Bruce Lee as a vessel to tell the story about the Asian American through the Chinese Exclusion Act, Yellow Peril, the model minority myth, um, I thought it was actually a perfect fit for ESPN, and they were very receptive to the idea. Yeah, and it's so great that uh, it's going to be on their platform, and it's coming out after the massive success of The Last Dance, so it's cool that a lot of people are going to get to see this movie. Um, one of the most interesting decisions you made in this documentary was no talking heads on screen. Right, The movie is told with voiceover overlaid on top of footage or still photography. And it creates a very distinct aesthetic. Uh, curious why you decided to take this approach. It was something that I 
knew I wanted to do early in the conception of the film because the film predominantly deals with Bruce Lee, the person in his present time. It's very little to deal with legacy and his impact post death. Right. And, um, in order for you to do that, you have to talk to the people who knew him most intimately. So, uh, 90, 95% of the film are people that knew him. Um, and then when they talk about him, I wanted them to talk about him in the most present way possible. And because a lot of these people are in their late seventies in their eighties, since Bruce would have been 80 this year. Um, I thought it was strange for them to talk about someone who is in their peak physical form at 20, 30 years old. And we cut back to hearing someone or seeing someone in their eighties talk about it. If I felt like that could be quite jarring. So I always wanted to immerse the audience in the world and the period that Bruce Lee was living in, you know, 1950s, Hong Kong, 1960s, America, 1970s, Hong Kong, these, these time period, these time periods that Bruce was living in these eras, these decades was important to understanding how Bruce developed as a person, as a human being. Um, obviously the sixties were a really tumultuous time in America, quite, quite relevant to today. A lot of things that are happening. And I wanted to see how formative the external forces that Bruce faced because of the civil rights movement, because of systemic racism in Hollywood, how that impacted him. And that meant also making sure that the footage that we see, the cinematic language that I'm employing, always places us in his present. This isn't a spoiler, maybe some people have seen the film already, but um, you know, the ending, we finally see a lot of these faces that I've been talking to or the voices that we've been hearing throughout the film. And I think there's a poignancy to that. We see uh, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, in the present day in his 80s. And we see Linda Lee Cadwell, um, you know, in her 70s today. And throughout the film, we see them in their in the, their youthfulness along with Bruce. So when we see them in today's time, I always thought it'd be an interesting kind of subliminal thing that people might imagine what Bruce would look like in his eighties too, mm-hmm. if they kind of see all the, his, his contemporaries in their, their older age. Was there anything that surprised you in terms of how challenging it was to take this approach with the, the no talking heads or anything that was easier than you thought it would be with the no talking heads? It's definitely harder, I would say, because that means you just have to have like twice as much footage to work with. Right. Because you always, you know, with most documentaries with talking heads, you can always cut back to the interview if you can't cover it with B-roll or archival. But I made it very hard for us as a film crew to do that (laughs) because it's like, no, we're not going to see the talking head. So we have to really visualize the film and visualize the stories that people are telling. And, you know, majority of the film is archival footage that we source from that time period but there's also a good chunk of the film that we shot ourselves that um, emulates the same mood and texture that I wanted to um, the audience to feel when they watched the night, you know, period of 1960s, 1970s. And I shot it in a very impressionistic way, shot it with a Super 8 camera and other film cameras to make us feel always immersed, feel fluid through the story, right? 
Yeah. Did you uh, actually film the interviews or like just in case or did you were you committed to the path? You just recorded audio of all the interviews. No, well, we filmed the interviews because of the ending of the film. All right. When we finally see them, those are that's the interview setup. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, my, I'm, if, if you were to talk to my producer, she'd be <laughs> kind of. Uh, on edge because I told her we shoot and we spent money shooting these interviews right. traveling around the world really um, but I knew in my mind always we weren't going to use it but I would still want to sh- to have the best setup and just show them in their most beautiful light by the end of the film so the portraits have more poignancy um, so yeah I hope she's not going to listen to this <laughs> Basically, you could have done the whole movie via Skype or Zoom, pretty much as well. Exactly. I mean, if 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 unfortunately we had to do this film during the time of COVID, I probably could have made almost exactly the same film. Um, so, uh, one thing you do in terms of the scope of the movie is you try to cover basically his whole life. You know, some documentaries go for, you know, this, this documentary covers one week or 48 hours in the life of this person, you know. Um, but you decided to take kind of a broader view. Curious why you decided to take that approach. For me, I think there is a lot of people who don't know the full story of Bruce Lee. And this is, I shouldn't say that because I don't think it's a full story at all. I don't think anyone can make a definitive documentary story film about any subject, right? There's so much material and there's a lot of stories that we left out. Like, you know, the Wong Jackman fight is not in the film. Uh, We had edited a scene, but we felt it didn't kind of speak to the thesis of the film that we wanted to, uh, introduced to the audience. And I should say that um, the film is two things to me. It's the coming of age of Bruce Lee, and then it's the coming of history of America. And the coming of history is important because in order to know why Bruce Lee was rejected by Hollywood, you have to understand all the stereotypes and depictions of the Asian Asian American that came before it. And what were the ideas and what were... Um, the preconceived notions of what an Asian American could be and why couldn't they be a leading man on screen in television or, uh, on the, in film. Right. And, uh, that was always important for me to include, uh, moments in, in American history, like the Chinese exclusion act, the railroad workers, the civil rights movement, uh, model minority myth, um, that always interweave with Bruce's own story it was never kind of just thrown in there for uh, general context, but it also always related to how it was formative to how Bruce became Bruce Lee. And so, you know, there are moments in the film that we jump over a lot of um, events, right? And so even though it covers, you know, birth to death, it's the moments in between are, are very uh, specific. Yeah. Uh, And I really appreciated the section about uh, how Asians were depicted on screen during the time. It was actually honestly almost triggering to me as an Asian American because you basically show just countless clips of white people portraying Asian Americans. And uh, uh, yeah, kind of upsetting. So so well done on on that part of the movie. Uh, Well done for triggering you. Yeah, well done for triggering me. Um, 
one of the th- most notable things about the movie is you have footage from Lee's first screen test. Uh, and it is incredible. Like, th- this footage of him doing his first screen test, and, like, you see instantly how charismatic he is, how talented he is. Uh, you actually decide to open the movie with this footage. And uh, I'm curious, you know, is there any other footage that you were able to obtain that you were particularly proud of or that was particularly difficult to get? Because I can totally see that being the case with a movie that's this expansive in scope. Yeah, the thing with Bruce Lee is that there there's such a large fandom, right, fan base of Bruce Lee. And uh, ever since he passed away, people, there's some fans that have probably been going to swap meets and yard sales every weekend looking for that long lost Bruce Lee footage. And if for the most part, those fans, those super fans, this footage that they, that's in the film won't be a surprise to them. And, um, again, this film is not meant to be like, Oh, you're going to see something you've never seen before. It's more about hearing something that you never heard before. The stories that we found, uh, the people that we talked to, I thought that was a more kind of interesting approach than just showing Bruce Lee footage that you've never seen before that doesn't really have any context or any um, impact to what we're trying to say. And so, you know, the the screen tests, all of this footage is is rare to some, but for the hardcore Bruce Lee fans, they've seen it. But the people that maybe haven't been heard as much is someone like, say, Amy Sanbo, uh, his first uh, girlfriend in America, uh, is a Japanese-American woman who was uh, in the internment camps during World War II, and she's never spoken um, about Bruce Lee on camera or in a film. She, I think she did a print interview about 20 years ago, but um, other than that, this is her first time speaking about Bruce. And that story for me was really formative to who Bruce became because, you know, you always remember your first heartbreak. And after she broke his heart, he he sort of um, realigned his goals and decided to open up Kung Fu schools um, and not kind of teach more on a one-to-one basis or train with the with the specific group that he found in Seattle. And also, um, she as kind of this feisty Japanese-American, she was very, very much into her Asian-American identity. And at the time, Bruce was still figuring himself out as an American, as an Asian in, in America. But she taught him the value of being an Asian-American, which I think is really important, Um, even though he talks about how he wants to be seen as a human being. I think it gives him that sense of pride that he never maybe held before about, you know, where he came from and what his identity meant. One uh, critical moment in the film is about the show uh, Kung Fu. You mentioned it earlier, um, which is a show that Bruce Lee had originally created the idea for. He originally had conceived of himself as a star, um, and they weren't able to make it happen, right? Warner Brothers was not able to make it happen with him as a star. Instead, uh, a white person played the main character. And um, on the film... Like in in your movie, uh, the like a producer from back then is talking about it and how like he could not sell the idea with Bruce Lee as the protagonist. Um, and I guess I'm curious, you know, uh, was the did the conversation with that producer go beyond that? Like, w- were they reflective of like, oh man, I wish I could have made that happen, or um, 
you know, I, I guess I'm curious, like, people reflecting back on that, like, what what was their uh, thinking about the fact that it, it couldn't happen with Bruce Lee as a lead? I mean, so that that it was a Warner Brothers TV executive, Tom Kuhn, and he, I think he was matter, very matter of fact about that conversation um, because, again, there had never been a leading man that looked that had an Asian American face, right? That was the hero. Um, and he, he was thinking about the audience as he should be as a studio exec. And it just, I think it's more reflective, not of just Hollywood, but of America, right? America itself. If, if the audience isn't ready, that means the society isn't ready. And the society, it's this vicious cycle, um, that we talk about in the film where society often reflects, um, what what they see on television and, and media and culture, and then media and culture reflects what is represented in society. Um, I think it's actually kind of relevant to today's situation when we talk about representation. A lot of us are still stuck at home or we're under lockdown for a few months, and all the only society we saw was what we watched on television or read in books and and listen to in music, right? So I think that just makes the the discussion and the argument for representation so much more important because the, the versions of ourselves that we see on screen need to really reflect something that's multifaceted, that's multidimensional and not stereotypical um, because that's how we treat each other in the outside world based on the stereotypes that we form uh, from culture. And I think, uh, Bruce was very diplomatic at first about it. He understood that um, America wasn't ready for an Asian lead. And that's why he, he um, reevaluated his opportunities and, and moved to Hong Kong. Uh, as an Asian American filmmaker yourself, uh, how have you personally witnessed Hollywood become more or less hospitable to uh, stories that center around Asian people throughout your career? I would say, you know, it would be cynical for me to say that times haven't changed for the better, but there's still a lot to be done. I mean, you even asking this question, right? If we still have to ask the question, then we we haven't really made it to the point where diversity is no longer an issue and inclusion is no longer an issue. And I started making films uh, over 10 years ago, and I remember going to film festivals and not seeing many filmmakers or films that had Asian Americans uh, were directed by Asian Americans. And now when I go to film festivals, that number, that community has grown uh, quite substantially. And I think that is a sign of progress, but there still is a lot of work to be done. It's not just people who are making the films or um, appearing on screen. It's really the people who are in the executive positions like that Warner Brothers executive we were just talking about, Tom Kuhn, those are the positions of power that are able to green light these stories that um, that go beyond the single story of a community, of an individual, of a race. And I think once those numbers start going up more, then it will trickle down to all aspects of, um, of the industry. I got to ask you about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, have you seen that movie? 
What's that? I'm just kidding. Yeah, here. Um, yeah, I've I've seen it. The Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah. So for those so. those who are not aware, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was a Quentin Tarantino movie that featured Bruce Lee, uh, the character played by actor Mike Mo. Um, Bruce Lee's family has denounced how Lee was depicted in it, and he like, in my opinion, he comes off as rather buffoonish in the movie, and I was very disappointed with his depiction. But I'm curious, as somebody who has made a film about Bruce Lee, what was your opinion of that depiction in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Well, just to give you like some context, I remember when the film came out and we were just finishing up the edit. Uh, and we, we were editing in London, so the film came out a little before, a couple weeks before it came out. Uh, a little, it came out in the U.S. before it came out in London. And I remember it coming out and people just knowing that I was working on this Bruce Lee doc, everyone texting me, oh, did you see the film? What did you think? Yeah, I, I am now that guy. I'm the latest. You are that guy. I'm text guy. number 135 being like, like, what did you think? 10 months behind. <laughs> um, and uh, after when it came out, I, I mean, I told people like, I'm not thinking about that film. I haven't, I'm not going to watch it. Um, well, I can't watch it, first of all, but I'm focused on making my film about Bruce Lee. And eventually the, I just got bombarded by it. And then a friend of mine in London is like, oh, you want to go see the film? It's playing on 35. And I was like, okay, I'll see it in 35. That's, that's, that's a good enough reason to go see it. To see it in 35 to, millimeter, you're saying? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and so I watched it and no, you know, I didn't read any of the articles that came out. I knew that there was uh, a backlash for sure. And I watched it and yeah, I, I felt like I, I, I cringed a bit when watching it. And I think, you know, for me as a filmmaker, I would never censor or um, necessarily tell if any other filmmaker of what type of story they can tell and what type of characters they can, um, you know, that they can put in their films. And so I, I, I saw it as this very fictionalized caricature of Bruce Lee. It is Tarantino's version of Bruce Lee. And that's not the film, obviously, that we tried to make with Be Water. It's a very different film. It's, uh, I guess, a more whole and humanistic view of Bruce Lee. And um, I guess that's all I can say about that, just that um, if you, that's, the, the version of Bruce Lee in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is very different from the version of the version of Bruce Lee that I heard from people who knew him intimately and personally. Right. Um, it's it's so odd. I think something was probably lost in translation because you got to believe that Tarantino is a huge fan of Bruce Lee. You know, I mean, just in terms of what he has taken from Bruce Lee films and incorporated into his own movies, I assume he's a huge fan. Um, but I don't know that that really came across um, in the movie, um, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about that. We don't need to rehash it. was just curious what you thought of it. Um, speaking of popular depictions of Bruce Lee, uh, one of my first exposures to Bruce Lee was watching Rob Cohen's movie, uh, Dragon the Bruce Lee Story, in 1993. I watched that movie in theaters. Uh, I'm curious if you've seen that movie and, and what your thoughts are on that. I have seen that film. I, I remember seeing it when I was young too. I think we're around the same age. So yeah, um, I saw it in theaters, thinking everything was true. Right? You, you, you again. It's it's the power of representation of story of film of like creating uh, 
truth and accuracy. And as a kid, you always think you're watching something, especially something that's quote unquote based right on based a on story. a true story. And you're like, exactly. oh, it's got to be a true story. Everything's true, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> and um, that you know, I, I watched it again uh, before we made our film, but I knew Bruce's story much more clearly and accurately. And I, I, after like 20 minutes, I turned it off. I was like, I can't watch this film any longer. <laughs> I love the film. I love Jason Scott Lee. Um, I actually ran into him a couple of weeks before the whole COVID thing happened at the Mulan premiere. And I just told him, oh yeah, I'm making this, I made a doc about Bruce Lee and I loved your depiction, but I think. Yeah, he was, he uh, was great in that movie, I thought. He was amazing. Yeah, yeah he was amazing. So um I, I I have no comment other than my childhood version of myself loved the film and well what yeah. what was your what was the part of you that made you turn the movie off like what was there something that was inaccurate that you felt oh I can't stomach this given the truth or yeah what 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 was the the thing that made you reach for the the TV remote I mean there was like a lot of scenes early on in the film that were exaggerated and dramatized again filmmakers if you if you think films are 100 percent accurate and i have another story to tell you because they are not uh, especially fiction films and so yeah there's a lot of build-up and then i think when finally um he was about to leave for america and his conversation with his dad um just felt very different from how that conversation happened uh, when I talked to his younger brother, Robert. And so um, I just was, I, I watched the film just kind of as a throwback to when, as one of my first kind of entry points into the story of Bruce Lee. Again, I had seen Enter the Dragon, but I hadn't known much about his life. So then I took this film to be the whole complete true story of Bruce Lee, which I found out decades later that it was not. What, what, what was the the conversation, like, what was it about the conversation that rubbed you the wrong way? Was it just over the top in the movie and in real life it was much more low-key? Or I'm curious, like, what was it about the conversation with his dad? Because him splitting from his dad um, was, I, I guess, a big part of his upbringing, right? Yeah, I mean, it was just, I don't know. It was just kind of the maison scene of it, yeah. just how they set up his his home and his uh, environment, it just seemed uh, not what I imagined and not what I had read. Inter- I don't want to say interac- inaccurate, but it just wasn't how It just I didn't feel it. right. Just didn't feel yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. It didn't feel right. So when, I, when something doesn't feel right, I, I watch every movie until the end because I always believe that, you know, if you, if you wow them at the end, then then you you can save the rest of the film. But I had already watched Dragon, so I didn't want to ruin my, you know, nine-year-old admiration <laughs> right, for that film. Because right. I really enjoyed it when I was nine. I, I remember, I haven't gone back and revisited that film, but I do remember certain scenes from that movie. Certain scenes, like, really stick out to me. Um, the scene where he's at his father's grave, that one really stuck with me. Or um, there's a scene when he's supposed to be... Uh, in the Green Hornet, and they they're like trying to get him to wear the mask more. You remember that? Yeah, yeah. And that, yeah. that felt a little re- relevant to your movie, where he's like, the one executive was like, "Yeah, can we get him to wear the mask more?" And he's like, "Why? Why do you want him to wear the mask more? Like, it's it's obvious that he's Asian. Also, the character is Asian. Um, 
which I, I thought was uh, one of the first times. It was one of the first times in my life that I realized, like, uh, so, sort of the full extent of kind of the problem of Asian representation in American media, you know, was that it was, was watching them argue about how much Bruce Lee should wear a mask in Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, which is something that you go much more into in your movie. So, um, but speaking of your movie, it's titled Be Water, which is a philosophy that uh, Bruce Lee had. You know, he had a great respect for water, the idea that water uh, can flow, it can be shapeless, but it can also penetrate the hardest substance like granite or rock. And I'm curious um, uh, why you decided to title the film Be Water. Well, I knew I didn't want to include the name Dragon. <laughs> why didn't you call it Dragon the Bruce Lee story is what I'm asking. I, I just, well, I should just, I'm, I'm going to call ESPN right after this and try to change it. Okay, good. Um, good. But I mean, we were kind of close to locking picture, finishing the edit of the film, and we had like a list of possible names. And um, someone on the team had mentioned B-Water, and that was obviously near the top of the list. I didn't want to necessarily include Bruce Lee's name in the title of our film. So we wanted to find something that was iconic um, and elemental that when people hear that title, they immediately think of Bruce Lee. I think B. Water is probably his most uh, famous quote, right? That whole quote. And um, when we were making the film too, like the idea of water and it's very subtle in the film. There's kind of uh, reflections of water and there's water crashing. And that just happened. That wasn't, um, that was before we, we, right. You know, finalized the title and it just made sense that, that be water would be the title because the, f- the flow of the movie again is we're never um, cutting back to the present time or not a, never cutting back to um, talking head interviews. It's trying to be as fluid as possible. And, you know, there's this, these moments in the film where Bruce kind of hits these obstacles um, and America hits these obstacles in this, in the, in the sense of uh, the Chinese exclusion act or the model minority myth or civil rights. And, and again, uh, the, the racial, um, inequities of Hollywood. So I, I saw these as kind of like rocks that Bruce had to get around. And so um, he's always flowing through these ideas, these these um, obstacles and challenges that America is facing. And, and I also thought, you know, water being like water is um, the uh, metaphor for America. America is a uh, ever-changing experiment it's evolving constantly it's always fluid the idea of america with people coming through its uh borders and doors and shores every um every day and um you think of america today in this really tumultuous time with what's going on with the racial injustice and the the killing of um of george floyd and we're 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 hitting this rock and we're crashing against it in many ways, right? And um, it it I think that idea of being water is still relevant today and timely. Bao Win is a filmmaker whose work has appeared in the New York Times, HBO, NBC, and Vice. He's the director of Live from New York, a documentary about Saturday Night Live, and his latest film, Be Water, 
just aired on ESPN. It chronicles the life of Bruce Lee. Bao Win, thanks for joining me today on Culturally Relevant. Thank you so much, David.